You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome to TFM's local watering hole for all things geeky. I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and, well... Unfortunately, Christy is not with us this week. She could not make it. So I was able to wrangle, well, the only guy I could think of uh, straight from Batu himself, the one and only Jedi Master John Mills from Aggressive Negotiations. Well, thank you for having me back on, Matt. I'm always happy to be in the 602 Club and always happy to be talking about Star Wars as well, you know. And so I'm looking forward to talking about this book. I really am. Yeah, I am too. I am too. Um, You know, I'm when it was announced, I was very excited to to hear that they were going to be not only doing more Thrawn, but that we would be basically doing the prequel of all prequels for Thrawn himself and really getting a chance to kind of see him before everything we know uh, and mm-hmm. explore the ascendancy. So we're going to dive into all of that. But before we get there, just want to remind you, of course, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. In fact, we're even on an Apple Music podcast now. They have a whole podcast section. I got to say, I was looking through it, John. Their podcast setup is beautiful. Um, you can see a podcast and, you know, like what we do here in the 602 Club and we do it on Aggressive Negotiations as well. Each show is embedded with the show art and like they have a wonderful uh, setup on the, um, the uh, app there. Or on um, the uh, the web version where you can actually see an episode and it's episode art. It's really nice. So um, cool. Yeah, it's worth checking out if you're looking for a new place for podcasts. Of course, if you're on Apple Podcasts, give us a star rating review. Help people find the show as this show is coming out. I just want to say a huge thank you. Uh, this has actually been one of the biggest months that we have had in a long time. It's been a huge month. We've had a ton of people listening. So thank you so much for listening to us, uh, for uh, following us. Of course, uh, as we just launched uh, us having our own Twitter account, we've got at the 602 Club, and then, of course, we're on Instagram as well as at the 602 Club TFM. Uh, so follow us and like us in all those different places. We're on uh, Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, where you can uh, see all the shows we're doing. You follow us there. You could find us at the Babel Conference, where you can talk to fans and listeners from all over the world to see what's going on here and discuss all the different shows here on TFM. And, of course, you can also go to TFM. You can also go to trek.fm. That's our website. You can see all the shows there as well. You can go to the contact section and send Chrissy and I an email because we got so much coming up. I know we haven't had a ton of new stuff coming out in the movie theater, but we are trucking along. And, John, I don't know if you knew this, but this is actually episode 299. Wow. 299. Yeah. That's Isn't that crazy. That's a. That's a big, you got a big milestone coming up. I know. Next week, I'll, I'll spoil it. Uh, we're going to hit Superman 2 uh, because we're going to celebrate the fact that it's hitting a big anniversary as well. So I figured we'd just anniversary it up. So, Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's right. It is. Wow. That's Isn't right. Isn't that insane? Yeah. That is I mean, insane. It, uh, it just makes me feel old. But anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that's all the places you can find us and everything. And I do want to say a quick thank you to our associate producers through Patreon, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millett, and Daniel Noah. Really appreciate them supporting the show through Patreon. It costs so much to put this network on. And especially in this time, we legitimately need your help. So any little bit that you can give helps. Go to patreon.com slash trekfm, see how you can be part of the team. There's also some great contribution levels that get you some really cool perks as well. So again, check that all out at patreon.com slash trekfm. So John... We mentioned, uh, obviously, that we're talking about Thrawn Ascendancy, Chaos Rising. And I think, for me, one of the biggest draws and the most exciting things about this book is the fact that, you know, going all the way back to Heir to the Empire, Thrawn character, learning about this idea of the Chiss, the Ascendancy, we only get hints and vague references for most of what he's written about the Ascendancy and what's going on there. But this book legitimately dives in to that, world in a way that I've only ever dreamed of having happen and and what I love is just it was so exciting to really get to learn about um a Star Wars people in a way that I feel like we don't really get a chance to do much in Star Wars which is really dig into who they are what they're all about um and because so many times that kind of thing plays background to just the overall stories that are happening. But this is is really about the ascendancy is, I feel like, as much as it is about Thrawn. Oh, I, I agree. I you like I, I'm reminded in a in a sense, it's more in depth, but like when you would discover stuff about the huts in the Clone Wars and stuff like that. That's sort yeah, of when, that's when great we've done point. some yep. deep dive stuff. But um, yeah, in terms of this being about the ascendancy, what I find particularly fascinating about this book, what I think is really wild is that when you're dealing with expanded universe books like this, and I'm thrilled that Timothy Zahn is getting to revisit this character so much and really flesh these things out. Because like you said, Thrawn is the first new villain we got. And everybody fell in love with him instantly. Everybody wanted him to come back. And so they managed to bring him back, thrilled everybody. And now, like, I feel like, I feel like Thrawn and, uh, you know, and Zahn, the author, I feel like he's an old friend by this point. Because I feel like I've gone through all of these different stages with him and I've known him in all of these different incarnations and these different personalities and personality variations that, this is what's wild is this is easily the most fleshed out Star Wars character out there just by sheer volume of how many times Zahn has gotten to go back and refine everything. It's almost like being in a story group with him. It's like these last, you know, 20 or 30 years has been sitting around workshopping Thrawn and watching him evolve and noticing how the core of him remains the same but the other pieces of him can be molded to fit the Star Wars of the current era. And I think it's specifically because what you're talking about, he's from the Ascendancy. This isn't galactic politics. This isn't stuff that we've spent nine saga movies with. This is all a playground that uh, Zahn gets to go into and you know, fully realize I think that's a really good point is, you know, the, the, the whole fact that the ascendancy is in what 
is called the chaos, which is this mm-hmm. area of space which uh, a lot of natural disasters had happened galactically to kind of create this very chaotic point of space where it's very hard to navigate through. Uh, it's very hard to jump more than a couple of systems without being a force user, um, which, of course, you know, we found out about in uh, Thrawn Alliances, that idea of, of these uh, skywalkers who help them pilot their ships. Uh, and... Uh, you know, so this is a, a section of the galaxy that's really, in in many ways, separate. You know, it is it is set aside specifically, and it's almost as if this is really Zahn's playground. And it is really neat to see him be able to create something that feels, I think, very Star Wars, but at the same time, uh, just feels like, in a, in a lot of ways, a great science fiction story. Yeah. Yeah, that no, that that's spot on because what's interesting, and I'll, I'll give a shout out to a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Mike Schindler, who always says, "Oh, I want Star Wars without the Jedi, and I don't want lightsabers, and I don't want this, and I don't want that. I want something completely off the wall and different." That's what this is. This is this is technically Star Wars, but if I were to strip the the you know. The, the Star Wars brand from this, I could hand this book to somebody and it works. They don't need to see or read or experience anything else Star Wars. This is a standalone, basically. And it's just got the tie-in. And I think that's exactly how this sort of stuff should work. It's a Star Wars book without being a Star Wars book. It's fascinating. Yeah, and I think, you know, what it goes to show is that, you know... I think, you know, Zahn is kind of pulling from lots of different uh, places, uh, you know, um, and, and lots of, of different um, influences to be able to give him the story here, um, you know, the idea of the, the Chiss and who they are and, and, and um, what's going on in the chaos. And I think uh, what what is, is fascinating is, is the way that, you know, he, he kind of mirrors what we've talked about many times before here and on aggressive negotiations, you know, George having all of these different influences and pulling from those to create Star Wars. And I think that's the neat thing to me is that it, Zahn has the gift to be able to do that and make mm-hmm. it still feel like Star Wars, but also a great science fiction story at the same time. And, you know, the whole idea of the ascendancy, um, I was fascinated. You know, we have this whole idea of like that their home world has gotten so cold that most people don't actually live there. Like, it's a lie Mm -hmm. what they promote of how many people actually live on their home world. They say like uh, 800 million live there and really only 80 million live there. Right. Um, You know, uh, because. And and they do that because it keeps it it throws people off. You know, they right. would basically be coming if you wanted to conquer uh, their home world. It would it would be a waste because their home world doesn't really have anything worth having anymore. Um, right. People live underground there. <laughs> like it's not an exciting place to be. Uh, the Chiss home world, and yet they keep up appearances because. It, it keeps people throughout the chaos thrown off. They they don't realize that this would not be a world that would be worth spending a military campaign to try and take over. Right. It's it's the ultimate feint. It, it, it's, it's all a ruse. It shows how, as brilliant as Thrawn is, and he is brilliant, it's 
not he's more of a an extension of them mm-hmm. an evolution of them he's not an aberration and so i think that that's an important thing is to give thrawn that sort of context of he came from somewhere that was like him he's just better at certain aspects of it than than most other people but i, I actually wanted to uh, say to you cuz you mentioned you know superman 2 earlier were you getting a krypton vibe from the Chisholm <laughs> from, world, yes, yes, I, I, um, I think it's it, it's pronounced Kesper or something like that. Their home world, and yeah. yes, it does kind of feel w- without the crystalline nature of Krypton. Um, th- 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 thank you, yeah. welcome, Brandon. Uh, <laughs> so uh, there you go, just for you. Uh, that it is. It does kind of have this. Um, this uh, Krypton like homeworld place, like it very sparse, you know, obviously yeah. not a lot of people live there either. And, and uh, Krypton felt like that too, when you saw it in Superman, the movie, you know, uh, right. it didn't feel like a very lived in world. Um, and yet at the same time, it, what, what fascinated me, go back to the Ralph McQuarrie drawings of underneath Hoth. And what did he have? He had mm. the uh, tauntauns in fields of grass, you know, yeah. underneath the surface. And so it also felt like he was drawing from those kind of inspirations as well, that it's this frozen wasteland of a planet that you can dig down into these caverns and kind of find existence. Like you can live, mm-hmm. you know, you can create a world that wouldn't be awful to live in. Um, it also kind of reminded me of Star Trek two, you know, in the Genesis cave. Oh yeah. Okay. I could see so, that too. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So it's like Krypton and the Genesis cave had a baby and so, and made the, made the Chiss home world. <laughs> exactly. It, it exactly. all balanced so, out. Um, and I, I, it was also really interesting to learn is that you know, the setup of the political structure, you know, we've always heard, you know, about Thrawn, and we'll talk about later with him not being great at politics, but the fact that you have these nine ruling families, um, mm-hmm. and I thought that that was a really interesting way to kind of set this up, that you, you've you got this almost like royalty set up, like the, these families that kind of like, they're the ones that... that that rule and and in some ways it kind of reminded me a little bit of game of thrones where you have the different kingdoms and they're all under these lords you know and uh you have the and and then you have the one ruler over all of them and and so it kind of reminded me a little it's like i guess game of thrawn so um (laughs) you know i like that i like that (laughs) but (laughs) here I, i just i thought that that was really fascinating because it's not it's not just like ruling people; it's ruling families. Like it, there, it, it kind of has like almost right. a, a strange mob feeling to it too. Like you've got the ruling families, you know. Uh, uh, again, that's sort of like the huts, isn't it? Yeah, it's a good call. Yeah, you know. And so, and and the thing is, they function sort of like the huts, where the allegiances are always hard to decipher from the outsiders and people can conspire against each other and everything like that. But, but the thing is, what's interesting about it is that there's also shades of the Mandalore that we had in the expanded universe that maybe we're getting back to with the show, the Mandalorian, because that idea of uh, the merit adoptives, the -hmm. fact that bloodlines don't determine the families, that it's worth 
that that determines it. And so families, Star Wars has always been obsessed with family and finding your family. And it's very interesting that family is so incredibly important to the Chiss, but it's a uh, it's a political class. Each family is it's, is a political party, basically. And then the military is its own separate political party. Like, that's so – like, I, I have to give Zahn a lot of credit because when I see that little nugget of something that reminds me of something that existed in the expanded universe before but has been transported and, and reshaped, it it's comforting because it's it's almost like a validation of the idea – and a repurposing of it much in the same way that the Mandalorian does or solo did or some, you know, something like that where it takes an idea that was good and familiar. And when they threw out the, the expanded universe, you know, as you know, full well, I was no big fan of the expanded universe, but there were good ideas there. So when I see something that reminds me of the good ideas, it's like, okay, you didn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know, you're, you're willing to explore those interesting uh, ideas and themes still. I, no, I think you're absolutely right because that whole idea of, of, of family and pulling in family, uh, you know, obviously we saw that in Rebels too, uh, you know, with the idea of the, the, mm-hmm. the family on the ghost. And so this whole idea for the nine ruling families that they found a way to expand their families and, and continue to make their families political powerhouses – is what they do is they bring in these what you the lowest level is the merit adoptives, these people that have the opportunity to become part of one of these nine ruling families uh, as they as they move forward and if they continue to progress and they continue to be a, a value to the family they can become a trial born and the the ultimate goal is to become what they call a ranking distant which would means you would not only be part of the family but your actual bloodline would be added to the family. So that there would mm-hmm. be a marriage that would would make you officially a part of the family, and and therefore who you are gets worked into the family. And so, mm-hmm. to me, like you were saying, I think this is just such a fascinating idea that feels familiar, and at the same time has enough of an alien nature to it that it works perfectly, and it makes the chiss just so interesting um, because you know, as we'll talk about. Later with them, everything's political with them. So this Mm -hmm. makes so much sense about how, you know, you would be wanting to adopt the best and the brightest from these, like, smaller families that don't really, you know, like, they're, eh, some of them are okay, but, like, you're basically trying to pull from them to, to bolster yourself over the other you know, eight ruling families. Um, and it's this whole game. It's, it's just, it really is a game of Thrones, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it is. And it, what, like, it, just another thought that occurs to me, you know, as we're talking about it is this idea, I think also has resonance. And it, it, the thought is sort of forming now. So I'm probably going to say it clumsily. But as I think about it, it's sort of the way that we are all afraid, in a sense, of society realigning itself now because with social media and stuff like that, where the family as we understand it is ceasing – or the family as we understand it seems to be realigning because we have 
these online tribes that can claim people and sort of, um, you know, realign power structures within even blood relative units. And it, I think it's really interesting because I think that this whole Chiss merit adoptive trial born ranking distant thing is sort of along those lines of here is a group that wants to welcome you in and that to which you might want to belong because you have, you know, you want to belong to something and therefore it's given more weight than your actual blood relatives. Whereas in the sort of traditional understanding of family, you know, at least in Western culture, obviously I'm not saying anything anybody doesn't know, you know, like it was always like blood, you know, the, the families that came over that immigrated to the U S is like blood was everything you stayed together and you stuck together. And now there's this realignment thing happening. And so I think that the, the Chiss ascendancy speaks to that as well. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really good point uh, about the way that it, and, and for them, family is everything, but when they say family, it doesn't just mean blood, you know, and for them, right. blood is not thicker than water, right? It, 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 uh, because there's always the opportunity to be able to add somebody to the family who could benefit the family. And, and so that's what's fascinating. And obviously that's the way Thrawn, that's actually how Thrawn becomes part of the myth family. Uh, and so one more thing before we got to Thrawn that I thought was really fascinating and I really loved about this book is getting to know more about the Skywalkers uh, mm -hmm. at the and which, you know, Thrawn, uh, Zahn himself, I, I saw an interview and he, he had no idea who was going to get the chance to write this book. The other three bo books he wrote were all just one contract books. This one is a full three book contract. So he's getting to plan. Um, so he had no idea that, you know, when he threw that in there, that this would ever be something that he'd really fully explore. Um, and so, but I just, I love that idea. Um, and the fascinating thing to me about this was, is that we learned that Thrawn's sister was one, which makes it really interesting to me that Thrawn has such an aversion to the metaphysical when his sister and the Skywalkers, which he's close to, clearly have access to this type of power. And it's something we see, you know, especially when you go all the way to Rebels when he faces off up against Bendu. He just has no idea. He has no understanding of what to do with that type of power. And he really discounts it as well for the most part. So I just thought that was really fascinating because as we're seeing, he's just a character who definitely has these blind spots that he's never able to overcome. Yes. Uh, I, I do agree that, that it's, it's interesting, but it still makes sense because you have, you know, so many stories and so many different things, you know, the, the doubting Thomas that unless Thrawn can put his hands on it and experience it and outwit it and whatever, it's not real to him. It's simply a, uh, a factor. It's simply a, a piece in the game sort of thing. So I, like the shading that it gives to me isn't that he's um, like, yes, dismissive is the right word. I, I would say, I think, I think you're right with that, but it's not dismissive in a sense of not believing it exists he approaches everything as just, I just have to figure out how it works. And so in a sense, you can see his, his tenderness with, uh, Cherie, the, the Skywalker 
as leveraging her. Teaching her how to fly pays off later. And so I think that, you know, when we project forward and we go to Rebels, Bendu is something he cannot bend to his will. And so that frustrates him. And that's what really sort of sets him off. And I think that it it winds up being like politics for him. He knows it's real. He knows that it exists. He just knows that he's not good at it and he can't do it really. Yeah. No, I think that's a great way of putting it. And it just, it, it what I really love about this book, and, and obviously it's so important for the character of Thrawn, is because this is really the beginning of his story. And mm-hmm. one of the cool things is is how uh, Zahn intricately weaves the story of Thrawn becoming a merit adoptive to the rise of senior captain. And so basically what you have is you have a section uh, called Memories, and then you have the the section where it's basically real time. And each one of those memories is playing into things that are happening now. And, and, and what's really beautiful about it is the way I think that Zahn is able to show the actions that we take as a younger person have an impact on what happens to us as we grow up. And so mm-hmm. the, the way Thrawn is as he, you know, is a cadet all the way, you know, to being a senior captain, all, all these choices have an influence, have an impact. There are consequences to the actions to which he takes earlier in those memories that will play into what happens. And so I kind of really love that because sometimes, you know, working with, with teens as I do at the church, it's hard to explain to kids how consequences work. And what's neat about the book is that we kind of see, for good or bad, how the consequences of Thrawn's actions play out later in the book. Yeah, I, I find what, but what I find very interesting about it is, obviously, you know, Thrawn is also a special case in that instance, I'd say, because he moves with such a purpose that a lot of people don't have when they're mm-hmm. younger. So it's not like Thrawn is, you know, going to college parties and stuff like that. Thrawn knows where he wants to go from beginning to middle to end. And I think that there is a, um, there is an aspect. I don't know if it will play out this way, but the way I actually saw the memories and other stuff, like it's, showing us through flashback how he got to where he was and everything. But it also created the sense for me that Thrawn is the type of person who decided how he was going to be. And as a result, he's stuck. The reason he'll never be good at politics is because he's decided this is just who he is. He has no desire to learn it. Thrawn is intelligent enough that he could learn the political game. He just doesn't want to. And so I think that maybe those memories interludes provide some shading as to the fact that Thrawn has made the decision not to care and that it, you know, that is what will have the consequences. He's given the opportunity to understand, but the problem is the people who are his mentors, the people that go along with him, you know, Erelani, uh, Bakif, they, they shelter him. Even the the even the myth family, uh, uh, you know the the the, the great grandfather, 
the patriarch, yes. Even he protects Thrawn. Thrawn never has to learn how to do these things. And so in a sense, it also, I think, informs long-term why, you know, one of the things that you and I have talked about and that I think a lot of fans have talked about is this idea of even in Rebels, Thrawn's working for the Empire, but he's not loathsome. He's not Jerjared or Tarkin or anything like that. He's simply a dude doing his job sort of sense, right? right? And I think this adds a lot of shading to that because since he has been willfully blind to the politics, I could see him getting involved in the Empire and saying, oh, it's just it's just family business, whatever. Right. Well, and, and one of the things I thought was so interesting about this whole thing is like you talked about this idea of him kind of being sheltered by these people and they're taking care of him and mainly because the patriarch of the myth family sees him as a hope for the Chiss and sees him as ability to change. And I think one of the things that they like about Thrawn is that he does he does not play the political game because he doesn't really see pol- politics as being the way to keep the uh, ascendancy safe. Right. You know, uh, his view of the world is that he sees non-Chiss as agents, assets, Mm -hmm. to keep the Chiss safe because they, uh, uh, this Chiss can't be safe by being isolated. He he knows that it doesn't benefit them. What benefits them is to use them as basically chess pieces through alliance or whatever means necessary, basically, to help keep the Chiss safe. And he's he's wise enough to realize that the whole idea of, like, symbiosis, what happens to one is going to happen to the other, but he mm-hmm. doesn't see non-Chiss as people. He sees them as, as assets, whereas Erlani sees them as people, and that's the difference between them. And I think that's what makes it so fascinating is that his whole perspective is one in which I can totally see why he would join the Empire. Because for him, everyone that's not a Chiss is just an asset and a useful tool for him to try and keep his people safe. And that's why he's a part of the Empire in the first place. So it yeah. we really get to delve into... Um, who he is as a character. And like you said, he has these very particular ideas to which he does not deviate. And that's one of the things that makes him so fascinating, really. You, you know, a thought I had while I was reading it and taking it, taking away the, the uncomfortable discussion about him working for the empire, who we know are the, these supreme baddies and stuff like that. Um, putting him just back into this context, it's almost, and I, I'm not, assigning that sort of sociopathic bent that Thrawn has of viewing others as just things, you know, that's a really interesting way to, to look at the world sort of stuff. But in a sense, in terms of how he interacts within the Chiss and how he doesn't play politics, although he could sort of thing, he sort of reminded me of Patton, who was a brilliant military strategist uh, arguably the one of the reasons that the Allies won the Second World War, but couldn't play nice long enough to actually advance his, uh, you know, his own personal ambitions sort of thing. Now, granted, he 
made it to the rank that he did. He rose to the, the, the top and, you know, was a general and everything like that. But Patton was always that sort of general where people were like, fine, yes, okay, give him something to do, but can we send him somewhere else so that he doesn't have to talk to anybody? You know, like th- there was that sort of, sort of vibe. Did you, did you pick up anything like that with him or? You know, I, I, um, I did. And what I thought kind of a, with what you're saying, I think what makes it so interesting is that he does see people as people as long as they're chiss. And that was what was really mm-hmm. fascinating. Like he is solely devoted to his people and their survival. Well, the thing is, there's a word that I think neither one of us wants to use, but would apply to Thrawn. You know, he views his people as superior to everybody yeah. else yeah. and everybody else is lesser. He's a little bit he's a little bit speciesist. Yes. Yeah, let's say so, speciesist. We'll yeah. we'll go with that one. He's, but he definitely yeah. is. Um and and I think it's what's what was beautiful about this book is that because he's not interacting with with non chiss, it gives him the ability to to finally kind of see his heart, and he has this close relationship with Arlani. He has this close relationship with Thallus. Uh, he has this close relationship with Sherry. Like he has these very intimate relationships, actually. You know, uh, friendship wise. You know, and and these people who look up to him, but also people that he he respects. Um, like you mentioned, uh, Bafk, who, uh, uh, um, it, who is one of the generals who definitely, along with the patriarch of the myth family, they've known each other for a long time. They see something in this guy that they, I think they feel like is needed. And so mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating. We get to see Thrawn's allies in this book. And the fact that he does have very close allies. And I'm really interested to kind of see where this might go in the next two books. Because I'm wondering, can we can we give Thrawn a love interest in, like, Arlani? Um, oh, I don't think so. You don't think so? I, th- I, I don't think that'll ever enter into Thrawn. I could be completely wrong. I'd be thrilled to be wrong. But I don't think that will ever enter into Thrawn's brain. And that's what I'm wondering, too. Is he somebody who could have that type of relationship? I don't know. But what we did do, what we did see is that he has a lot more, like, he's a lot less Sherlock Holmes when he's with the Chiss in the sense of his personality than he is in the Empire, where he's all Mm. cold, there's no heart, but here... I saw that in him for the first time, and that's what I was fascinated with, with with these allies that he got. Well, but yeah, you know, uh, also the the fact that, and I I always pronounced it uh, in in the book, the Skywalker Cherie, because it sounds like the French word for love, like an affectionate Mm -hmm. name. Yeah. Um, But, you know, it actually goes to explain if you... like, I, I hadn't really thought about it. We're talking about him being, you know, very, quote unquote, speciesist and stuff like that. It would explain some of his attitudes and behaviors when he's in uh, what they refer to as lesser space, right? Like, when he encounters the Empire and the Rebels and all of that stuff, there are no chiss around except for him. He naturally looks at everybody as... 
less than he. So his sort of coldness makes sense. He, Of course, he's not going to get close to anybody. There's nobody worth being close to, to him. And so that that makes a lot of sense. Except, you know, of course, we have um, that very interesting history with uh, Anakin. <laughs> um, yeah. That, that, that exists and that I thought was very interesting. I did not expect this to have that interlude that worked in the other book, which yeah, also I felt was was very Clone Wars of oh non linear getting... storytelling. Yep. Yes. And I you know how much I love that. I know you do. I know yeah, I do. Well and it was fascinating because that's part of you know when uh, the idea of Thrawn's allies, you know, we we have his allies in the and the Chiss ascendancy, but he leaves specifically to see if he can find allies outside for them because what's happening to them is they're being surrounded by uh, this group yeah. who are who are definitely working to try to take over the Chiss ascendancy. And so to find allies is really important. And of course, we have Alliances, the book where he runs into Anakin and he has this whole adventure with Anakin. And so that's what I, I, I really love that. And I, I thought too, you know, again, with his this idea of him having allies, his relationship with all three of these women was fascinating to me. And especially with mm-hmm. Sherry, um, being younger, he kind of almost sees her basically as the sister that he lost. And the way that he takes care of her was really beautiful. And it's really the same way he took a care of Thalys. Um, when she was younger too, you know, they have that one interaction and it changes her life forever. And, and so, and even the relationship that he has with Erlani, I think their interaction as they're moving up the ranks together, um, makes her a believer in him and his abilities. Um, but it creates a very strong bond. And so I thought it was really interesting to see that Thrawn is actually very loyal because even when he's given the ability to maybe leave the myth family for another family mm. at a higher ranking, he chooses to stay. Uh, he thinks That's about leaving, but he uh, it feels like he never truly gives it the time of day, you know, um, just and and that's where, you know, him getting into politics is so interesting because. Well, maybe maybe that evinces that sort of wisdom that he's gained with these relationships. Maybe there's. You know, it just speaks to that part where even if you're not political, you can understand who your friends are. You can understand who's got your back. And Thrawn definitely understands that if he leaves the myth, then he's starting from scratch. He doesn't have the backing that he used to have. And that backing would necessarily leave him. So that... But but I think you're right. There there is a loyalty there that is interesting. It's intriguing, um, which also informs because we have that from you know uh, previous Thrawn stories of when he was involved uh, with the Empire, where he basically says to Palpatine, "Look, you know, if, if I tell you I'm going to be loyal, I'm going to be loyal, and that's just it. And you you have my word. Leave my people alone, and I I won't betray you." You know, I thought it was really interesting, this whole idea uh, b- b- with Thrawn, um, his, uh, this idea of that he's more willing to take risks because he knows that by playing it safe, you end up stagnant and it'll lead to, lead to the decline of the Chiss. 
And this mm-hmm. is something that actually scares many people in his own family and some of the other families. And that's why you have this like uh, group, um, this this small group of people that are kind of actively working to bring him down within the, the Chiss ascendancy because they're afraid of what he's going to do, which is actually the exact same reason that the patriarch believes that he is meant to be somebody important to the ascendancy. And so I yeah. loved the way that interplay happened in the book where we can truly see that um, this whole idea of whether you take a risk or you just play it safe, um, Thrawn walks that line in a way that makes people very uncomfortable around him unless mm-hmm. they've kind of gotten used to his behavior like his allies have and unlike the people who can kind of see oh, this guy has something and it's different than the than the conventional thinking, maybe we need less convention and more invention. Yes. Yeah, no, that's a good way to put it. That really is. That's a very good way to put it. Um, and it's interesting because the patriarch of the myth understands that they've got to take those risks to survive. Otherwise, all of the Chiss are eventually just going to die out. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Arizi family wants him, but simply because they can only see short-term political gain from it. And I also – I'm really interested to see how the politics of the myth family play out because we have Thurian who's working specifically against him. And I I think Zahn's set up a lot of great characters here uh, like Simacro. Who's being loyal, but I think that Zahn is telegraphing that he can be bought with favor, uh, you know, to to betray Thrawn later. He obviously wants the Springhawk. He has to tell himself to stop thinking about ascending and uh, and taking command and that sort of thing. And um, so I think that I think that. Zahn has set up a lot of really interesting threads with those relationships. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Um, and just before we go uh, from kind of talking about all these things that uh, I just wanted to not forget, I really loved, you know, people kind of have made fun about the whole thing about Thrawn and art, but I loved mm-hmm. him finally giving us a moment where Thrawn explains himself to somebody and shows how it works in his brain. And that somebody else, again, like you said, he is, he comes from a people, right? And many people are like him. He just happens to be an exceptional version of his people. And so what I I just really liked that we finally got him walking through an art gallery with somebody explaining what he sees and then helping them to be able to start to see it as well. It it just, it, it makes so much sense. And I'm just really glad that that Zahn took the time to do that in this book. Yeah, I, it's always been one of my favorite quirks. I think it's everybody. I mean, one of my whatever. Uh, but I think so many Star Wars fans who have been, you know, accompanying Zahn on this journey of refining Thrawn through the ages, all of us love the whole art thing. That was one of the things that made him so friggin' fascinating back in the early 90s was, you know, and when he died, spoiler alert, at the end of The Last Command... And his last words were, uh, I, I, I'm probably going to butcher it, but I think his last words were, it was also artistic or something like that. Like, it was a beautiful thing. And it's it's always been such a divining 
characteristic of him that I can't help but love, like you said, that that they spent the time on that. Yeah. No, I agree. It just it made it really special in this book. And part of that, I think it was it was needed one because it's never truly happened in any of the books. I don't think Um, and even in Rebels, um, you get little hints of it. But just have him kind of walk you through that was really fun. And Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that I really took from this book, too, is this this idea of like politics and war and like, you know, um, Arlani says there are two sides of the same coin and Thrawn is blinded to one. And I thought it was fascinating mainly because she talks about politics and she kind of describes politics as a shifting sand of self-serving dances. Uh, uh, And whereas the tactics of war and strategy and all those things are much more concrete. And and so politics is also about this thing of, of it cares only for itself. And as we see throughout this book, Thrawn cares about the whole of the Chiss people surviving. Mm, And so because he's worried about the whole, he's not worried about all these other petty games that people plays. He's above that really. And honestly, I think this is one of the things that the patriarch sees in Thrawn that he thinks maybe that the Chiss need more of because what we saw in the book, and I thought this was really interesting, especially in the world we're living in, John, to have a world where everything is politics, everything is mm-hmm. not necessarily a good thing. And we see that play out multiple times in this book that making politics of everything is maybe not the best idea in our lives. Well, that would definitely explain why the Chiss homeworld is a frozen hell. Because uh, if you read Dante, it's actually cold in hell. And so mm-hmm. it makes perfect sense. They are, they are in hell. They're in a, in a self-created hell uh, with all of the politics. If people would just... And, you know, and the thing is, maybe that also informs some of Thrawn's thinking and why he gets so frustrated uh, when we see him later with the Bendu and stuff like that is... W- why can't people just listen to him? And I think the reason Thrawn flounders in the political sense is he has found answers that make sense, that are logical, that will solve problems. And so he he's the type of person who says, why should I waste my time talking about it? I already know the answer. And that's the sort of thing that, of course, you know, layers in would explain why it's so interesting that he and Anakin are together because Anakin says to Padme, well, you know, I think everybody should come together and talk about it and and agree on what's best. And Padme is the one explaining to him, like Arlani's explaining, well, you know, well, that's not how politics works. That's what we're trying to do. And then Anakin says, well, then they should be made to agree. I think that's where Anakin and Thrawn are very similar is Thrawn is sort of like Anakin where it's the politics make no sense to him. So he's just going to, uh, you know, it's better to try to force things, but then taking to the next step, a personality like Thrawn, he doesn't want to be a dictator. He doesn't. Want, he wants to teach people. He, he doesn't want to be a guru. He wants to be a swami. And so we continually see him teaching people. 
And I think that's what the patriarch sees is if he can teach people to think and, you know, expand and analyze and look at things, a lot of those political power plays fade because people start to understand. Thrawn, in a sense, is listening to everything and and putting it in his brain and working it out and coming to a conclusion. He's just a committee of one. Yeah, well, and I, it's, it's interesting you say that because there's also the whole point of uh, the group of aliens that we have our villain uh, uh, mm. of the book trying to take over and they kind of think about all thought lines, right? And where the villain gets lost and Thrawn doesn't is that the idea of value judgments and that we all make value judgments based on opinions that we trust. And it all mm-hmm. comes down to what we can trust more and what we can trust less. And usually that means is that something has proved to be trustworthy, right? And so what do right. we see of Thrawn is that he looks at the most trustworthy things, you know, and things that don't lie. Art doesn't lie. Why? Because art is what's truly from the heart. That rhymed. I didn't mean it to rhyme. Um, yeah, and- it's beautiful. And so um, people can't lie when they're creating art because it's a part of them and that part of them comes out. So parts of your culture, who you are, it's it's like when he's trying to teach Erlani about art and he looks at some of her artwork and then they fight and he's able to use what he learned from that, her self-expression, to be able to best her in a, in a battle, um, which yeah. again shows how Thrawn's able to do that on a larger s- scope. And so... I think um, what makes it really beautiful is that what we see is that is that making everything, uh, you know, just about this this political game, these political games and not actually taking into account the whole only thinking about the short term. Um, Mm -hmm. is is in that short-sighted nature is again it's the very thing that Thrawn's not doing he's thinking about the whole in the longest term possible what's and 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 really what Thrawn is is he is uh, utilitarian the greatest good for the greatest amount of people for the longest amount of time that's that's who Mm -hmm. Thrawn is that's what his greatest goal seems to be and so I think it's really interesting when you just see these different philosophies all coming together um and you, you have the much more short-sighted philosophies that that's why Thrawn just can't understand them because they don't make sense to him at all. But at the same time, it's what makes him so frustrating. Why you can't ever view him truly as a hero is his amorality. Because, you know, he talks about value judgments and opinions you trust. But, you know, he's the sort of – I mean, in in essence – his core moral value is like uh, like Bane from The Dark Knight Rises. If I have to step on you and break your neck or snap you in half just to get done what I need to get done, well, okay. It's not personal. I'm just going to do it to you. And it's, it's that sort of thing that is, is that dispassionate. Uh, it gets back to that dispassionate assessment of others that is um, – that is really, really interesting. And, and it's, you know, it's interesting because even, even, you know, mob guys, even hitmen, they have friends, but they'll kill people. And so it's always like Thrawn has these two sides that are really difficult to resolve. And I think that that also speaks to why he's so interesting. 
Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I think, you know, you've kind of hit it on the head really well in the fact that um, he his his morality is the continuation of the chiss species um, for the ultimate amount of people uh, possible and the the long lasting nature of the of his species that's his morality so which as we talked about allows him then to um do what he has ever whatever he has to do to make sure that that they they continue um which is also means he sees people as kind of less than the chiss and he sees them as assets so you know i i think that that's one of the things that i love so much is that there's that there is that side of what we would consider kind of villainy in him um you know and i think that's what makes him so um he's such a dimensional character then which is really great uh so um what did you think of you know we got our benevolent villain in yiv the benevolent coercing all these planets and in some ways he's he's slightly a mirror of uh, Thrawn and his intuitive nature and, you know, being able to read people and to kind of coerce them into what he wants to do. And yet, uh, he can't control his emotions. So he's able to lose focus. And so I just kind of thought it was really fun to see somebody go brain to brain with Thrawn. Yeah. But I, I think you've, you've already given why Thrawn is able to handle him is because Yiv, the Benevolent, is in it for personal power and glory. Thrawn is in it for the sake of his people. So while they're both flip sides of the same kind of villainy, Thrawn at least has a um, a goal beyond himself, which enables him to remove himself from the equation. It's not about him. Yiv, the Benevolent, is about Yiv, the Benevolent. And what I find very interesting is the fact that it is Thrawn figuring out that where Yiv is really smart is Yiv has figured out how to corrupt a system that is supposed to be neutral to his benefit, the navigators. And so Kalori begins to subvert the neutral purpose of the navigators within the chaos. And that's what Yiv can, can use. So in a sense, Yiv is winning because he's cheating, but Thrawn is the one that essentially figures out, Oh, you're cheating. Okay. The rules are a little bit different here. Whereas everybody else is having difficulty dealing with Yiv, not just because of the military might, but because of the fact that he is using the system against itself, what Kalori is doing is forbidden. It's not supposed to happen. And yet he's chosen to do it. And so, you, you know, I, I'm actually reminded of um, the guy's name was uh, Robert Hansen. And he was an FBI agent. And he did so much incalculable damage uh, to the United States and the world because he simply decided not to play by the same rules and people had trouble catching him 
because everybody was presuming, you know, the, the, the thing that makes spies capable is that they are able to operate within the system because everybody's presuming at a baseline that everybody else is playing the same game. And all you need to do is just, you know, turn a couple of dials and you can exist within the game, look like you're playing right, but you're cheating the whole time. And so I, I think that's I think that's interesting because Yiv Yiv is an example of why a person like Thrawn would need to exist. If Thrawn did not exist, Yiv wins. He takes everything over because he's cheating. You need somebody like Thrawn who can outmatch that. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's one of the things that makes it so interesting because Thrawn is is able to think outside the box, you know, uh, and that's what makes him so special. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, he, he, he is able to think of other things that people wouldn't and maybe part of that comes from his um what we consider a morality you know um because mm-hmm. he, he's thinking on a different level than everybody else so uh yeah it 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 make it made for a really good an, an explanation and exploration of thrawn growing up and that this is a problem that he continually started to see that nobody else can see. And then again, in the end, he was the only one who could really help defeat it with the help of the, the people who trusted him um, as well. And that was the other thing I thought was interesting is this whole thing. He's only able to, you know, defeat Yiv the Benevolent because he's he has been able to engender trust and loyalty to him as well as much mm-hmm. as he gives it he's been able to um to uh create it for himself and, and so to me i think that's really interesting um last thing was this is that we end up with a phantom in the chaos and uh this, would you say that it's a phantom menace Matt? one might actually say that yeah and so um <laughs> the fact that we have this character revealed at the very end of the book that names himself Jictus. Jictus. Oh, I, I thought no it was idea. Jinx. Jinxus. Jinxus. Jinxus maybe. There you go. Yeah, it could be that too. Um, so uh, X's are always really hard to figure out how you would pronounce those. So. Yeah, I, th- I think it's Jinxus. Let me yeah. let me look at this. Let me look at the spelling one last time here. Uh, oh no, Jictus. There was no end. Jictus. Okay, yes. that works. Yeah, I like it. Um, so, what did you think about? I mean, did you expect this at the end of the book that you know no. we would have? No, I didn't. Uh, and I'm really, I'm really, really interested to find out who Jixus is. Uh, I don't think it. I mean, my initial reaction when I when that scene happens and Kalori, you know, comes to a halt and the voice starts talking to him. My initial reaction was, Oh, it's Palpatine. And then I thought about mm-hmm. it for a second while I'm reading it. I'm like, ah, uh, maybe, I don't know. And then, you know, Jixtus, I was like, Oh, okay. That's obviously an assumed name. Right. But it's interesting nonetheless. And this is the type of scene that makes me, Hey, I'm a little impatient for the next book. Like I, I really want to see this play out. Well, and what I really loved is that, you know, this is just their first sortie, 
you know, like they, they are well, we're well prepared for this not to be able to take down the Chiss or bring down Thrawn himself. Right. And so, but they figured, you know, we'll, we'll let Yiv have his fun. We'll let him go. We'll see what happens. Right. But it's probably not going to work. And so I think that's the thing that makes this so exciting is that there's somebody behind this who, who truly does seem like they might be a match for Thrawn, you know, in the head, um, which mm-hmm. is exciting. So I really, I'm right with you that I, I can't wait now to see where we go next. And the only thing I could think of as next, which would possibly be, you know, what you would rate Thrawn Ascendancy Chaos Rising. I, I will give it four and a half stars because I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it's a little bit of a slow start, but that back half, that last 200 pages, couldn't put it down. I'm a slow reader. Okay, I, 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 I will cop to that. I am a slow reader. I read those last 200 pages inside of a day. Well, 24, you know, read, sleep, wake up, read more. Like, for me to demolish 200 pages in less than 24 hours, that is something special. Uh, in terms of being something that whether a Star Wars fan should read it, it gets a five. I think if you're a Star Wars fan, you're nuts to skip this book. You've got this is a must read. This is this is an instant winner for me. Yeah, I'm right. I'm you? right there with you. Um, I gave this five stars just because I I really enjoyed it so much. It was everything that I wanted, honestly, from the book when it was announced, everything that I kind of hoped that this book would be with the exploration of Thrawn and the exploration of the Thrawn, or the Ascendancy itself, you know, fantastic. And, and um, like you, I, I would say it's probably 4.5 for other people that aren't Star Wars fans and mainly just because you would really have want to have read Thrawn Alliances to kind of truly understand what's going on with the whole Anakin interlude part. Um, right. But that's the only knock, you know, otherwise this is an incredible book. And of course, for any Star Wars fan, yes, this is an absolute must read and don't don't skip it. So, yeah, this is a this is a go out. And if you can buy in hardcover. Oh, because the hardcover is beautiful. We did not even talk about the presentation of the book. It's uh, yeah, the, the presentation of the book is everything that's occurring, quote unquote, currently. There's a blue bro- blue border on the page. And then anything that's a memories has a slightly askew, um, different blue border with hashing, hatching in it. So mm-hmm. when you open up to a page, you immediately tell what era you're in. But it's all the blue and white, which ties into Thrawn's skin and his Grand Admiral uniform. And, of course, to the, the Ascendancy homeworld. Yeah, it's honestly, if you're going to make me pay for a book and it's a hardcover, this is how you do it. Yeah. <laughs> you design it like this. Absolutely. Uh, I would give full marks to Del Rey uh, and, yeah. and Star Wars books. Fantastic job. So, uh, John, before we get out of here and, and let everybody know where they can find you, you know, normally we do recommendations. And uh, so yes. wondering what you would want to recommend this week. Oh, my gosh. I'm not entirely certain what I should or could uh, recommend. Um, but I, you know, and the thing is, I know you guys do this, so I, I don't know why, um, I, I came unprepared. So what I, what I will actually do is I will throw out there, um, 
you know what? Can I can I kick it to you first? Can you give me an yeah, extra second? Yeah, to let's think? do that because I I've got one. So I was really excited that this came out, and so they have just re released finally on Blu Ray. Uh, for the first time, and in a gorgeous uh, remastering of Roman Holiday with Gregory Peck oh, wow. and Audrey Hepburn. It looks gorgeous. It's such a fantastic movie. Um, it's something you could watch with the whole family. It's smart, witty, funny, incredible performances. This was Audrey Hepburn's first major role in a U.S. film. She is delightful. Gregory Peck is wonderful. If you haven't seen this movie, I just highly recommend it. And the presentation is glorious because actually the remastering was done in 4K and yet they only released a Blu-ray. No idea why, but it looks beautiful. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's That's, weird. Uh, but it still looks the best that the film has probably looked. I, I mean, I'm guessing probably even since it came out. I mean, it just it looks gorgeous. You know what I'm going to recommend, because here we are, we're coming up on October, and uh, thank you for letting me think for a second, but I've just started reading it, uh, and so I'm not done, but I already know I'm going to absolutely love it. This is going to be one of my books of the year, uh, but I, I recently purchased uh, The Haunted Mansion, uh, Imagineering, a Disney classic. Oh, very and cool. And it's the history of The Haunted Mansion, and it's fascinating uh, the Haunted Mansion is one of my favorite things in the entire world. Uh, I would love to, I mean, geez, I would love to, you know, if I won the lottery, I would probably buy, like, not buy, I would probably build an imitation Haunted Mansion somewhere <laughs> just so that every October I could go live there. That would be awesome. Um, as a matter of fact, I don't understand why people, like, they have, like, these millions and billions of dollars, like, why hasn't anybody done that? Like, what what's broken inside of them that they don't do that? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Anyway, so, uh, you know, I, I encourage anybody, especially as we're in the month of October, especially if you've had the good fortune to uh, have been to Disney World or Disneyland or whatever, the, the Imagineering stories behind the Disney rides are always fantastic, especially the original ones. And so I, I would encourage, you know, that's my recommendation. Pick up the book and spend a nice uh, fall eve uh, reading up about the, the creation of a cultural icon. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I love it. Uh, I, I watched the Imagineering se- uh, series that they did on Disney Plus and just learning mm. the behind the scenes of all that stuff is mm-hmm. phenomenal. So, um, but John, if anybody wants to catch up with you and uh, hear more about your uh, adoration for the Haunted Mansion or anything else, <laughs> where unhealthy. can people find you? <laughs> My unhealthy fixation on the Haunted Mansion. Uh, well, you can find me online as Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. Uh, yeah, I'm more active than I should be on Twitter, but I highly recommend, you know, if you want to connect uh, I'd love to. Letterboxd is probably the most fun place to hang out socially, I think. But I, I'm on all of them. Vero, Instagram, Twitter, Fade, blah, blah. Just look for Kessel Junkie. Just look for Kessel Junkie. Um, and you can find me over on the Nerd Party Network. Uh, I'm on a single season show called uh, House of Fincher, where we analyze the directing works of David Fincher. And as we're recording this, it's it's getting ready to come to a close with the release of David Fincher's latest Mank. And also over on the Nerd Party, I uh, have the 
distinct honor and privilege to appear on a show called Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast that features, of course, also you, Jedi Master Matthew Rushing. Which, honestly, I got to say right now is so much fun because we're doing, uh, as we get ready for season two of The Mandalorian, we're doing... Mm-hmm really fun conversations and commentaries for each of the Mandalorian episodes. So yeah, um, we're like everybody else. We can't wait folks. So <laughs> it, it um, is a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, otherwise you could find me on Twitter, Instagram, letterbox, Pharaoh under the Matt rushing zero two. Uh, you can find me here on the network also doing literary treks and the orb, both with Chris Jones, literary treks is about the books and comics of star Trek and then, of course, The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Over on the Nerd Party Network, doing a little show uh, with Dre Kaufman as we're talking about Harry Potter each and every week, one chapter at a time. It's so much fun. It's called Owl Post. Um, and I don't know, you know, um, if you're lucky, John and I just might have something in the works for you here in the future. Just teasing it. Just saying. Um, so otherwise, thank you so much for joining us. And may the Force be with you. Thank <laughs> you.